0: listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode nightmare retrospective podcast. I'm Martin
1: Harder, and I'm a small furry creature that wants to pet you. And I'm Martin O'Doney, and I have a small furry creature that is petting a part of my anatomy that I do not wish to identify to you. Although, I can reveal that if I was a dartboard, it would be unsettlingly close to treble 17. So already we found a part you're going to have to edit out. <laughs> 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 you only just got to line two. And today marks the end of an
0: era for 90s all over the world. Today we're looking at series two, episode sixteen, the very last episode of the series. It was broadcast on December the nineteenth, nineteen eighty-eight. By now, you've probably guessed that Cliff Richard was still mistletoe and whining on at the top of the UK singles charts. His album, The Private Collection, was also number one in the album charts. And personally, I think it should have stayed private, but apparently I'm in the minority.
1: I don't feel any actual hatred at all for Cliff Richard, I I want to stress that. And in fact, my mum is one of his greatest ever fans, so if, if he brings her joy, I can't bring myself to resent him. I've actually met Cliff Richard. Have you? Yeah, Queen's Jubilee, the
0: 50th Jubilee. I was oh, it so that, was that the massive,
1: con- the massive concerts um, um Buckingham Palace? No it, wasn't, oh, no, it wasn't actually there.
0: There's a bit of a story. I was going round a corner, one direction. He was coming round the corner, the other
1: direction. We just collided with each other. All right. So what you actually mean is you crashed your vehicle into him. We were walking. So so you collided with him? Knocked him straight to the ground. You met him head-on? Not intentionally.
0: To add insult to injury, my friend who was with me thought he was Elton John.
1: Oh, that will really hurt. Cliff Richard being mistaken for Elton John. (laughs) They are absolutely nothing alike. They don't even have have remotely similar singing styles. What was the number one movie of, of this era, please, Mr. H?
0: Well, according to the website saltypopcorn.co.uk, it's still the excellent Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a perfect movie, and nobody's going to tell me otherwise.
1: Yeah, okay, right, fine. Whatever. It didn't have Cliff Richard movie. in it, so according to my mum, it was a rubbish film. movie! My mum outranks you, okay? She says it doesn't have Cliff Richard in it like Summer Holiday did, so Summer <laughs> Holiday is a better bloody movie than Roger Rabbit.
0: I'm Martin O'Donoghue and my mum outranks you.
1: Oh yeah, alright, you want to pick a fight with my mum? I've got her over here. Mum, come here, come here. Oh my god, I'd love it if your mum just suddenly appeared on <laughs> There's no point in talking about Roger Rabbit and, and Mistletoe and White again, is there? So we'll, we'll, no. We'll, 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 I should just say, this was the um, the episode um, a couple of days after I was finally released from hospital with my broken leg, so uh, I was able to record this one again, so it's, a, it's an episode that I saw a few times during the late 80s, so I actually have a pretty vivid memory of it again.
0: Do you mean your mum didn't record them for you after you are in hospital?
1: No, she refused to record it because it didn't have Cliff Richard in it. If Cliff Richard had played Trey Guards, she'd be watching it avidly every single week, but no. So, anyway, shall we have a dungeon ditty? Welcome, watchers. Settle down, for now we're all
2: adventure-bound. Treyguard salutes you. This is the final stage in this phase of my dungeon, and soon all adventuring must cease while the dungeon prepares fresh challenges. But for now at least, timeout is gone. The quest is on. From Hoyt in Scotland come three maids. These lasses now are on their way to solve the dreaded catacombs. So now they go from room to room to make new friends and vanquish doom. Young Karen is their dungeoner. Let's join them. Watch, the game
1: is here. We got maids and way, catacombs and room, then room again to vanquish doom. And then Dungeoneer and the game is here.
0: It's trying to be too clever.
1: Yeah, it's, it's probably trying a bit too hard there. But I think you can still give it a pass, that one. Maids and Way is the only, is the only flawed one. And it's not desperately awful. I think we can give that one a pass. But I should say, at the same time, it is probably the most detail-free and superficial ditty of the season. Mm. Uh, it hasn't really got any choice because partly they, the, the team's quest has literally only just started; they're still in the Wheel of Fortune chamber. But also, the production team clearly wanted to shorten the ditty to make more questing time available. See
3: the lever. towards you.
0: We said this was the end of an era, and unfortunately, that means saying our last goodbye to the Wheel of Fate. Although a simple way to start off a quest, it was also one of the most spectacular. We hope you will join us in a salute to the magnificent room as the jingle plays for the very last time.
3: It's the kitchen stop.
1: I don't think it was just one of the most spectacular. It was definitely the most spectacular and definitely better than the one that they replaced it with.
3: Where am I? You're in a large sort of room, Corrin, and there's a lady twiddling her fingers
4: and um, her arms are going round. Hello, Dungeon You mustn't make me shout because it's rude to shout. So why don't you come over here so I can talk to you?
0: Not all the final goodbyes we have in this episode are necessarily sad ones. Once again, I want to stress that it's not in any way a slight on Audrey Jenkinson, who is a remarkable performer. But I'm so glad that today is the last time we'll be seeing Gretel.
1: Though, well, she does get rather a prolonged goodbye here because she does appear in more than one scene, unfortunately. It's kind of a shame that they didn't keep Audrey for Series 3 and have they a, a different character. I'd certainly be interested in seeing Audrey um, playing a a very different type you know Hmm. maybe she could have played the wall monster or or the oracle in season three but i'd have been quite interested to see if she if uh how audrey would have handled playing a rather villainous creature like that or maybe even have her play morgana
0: it does make you wonder if it was just a case of the contract expiring and not being renewed or if there was something else going on
1: it's possible. She, it, it might be she just didn't want to, want to carry on because she, wasn't, she probably wasn't enjoying playing Gretel. I, I can't imagine she did. I agree with you. It, it's a pity that she didn't get something different to do. And uh, season three would have been a perfect opportunity to give her something else.
4: As you can see, I'm quite unable to move because I'm undergoing my latest beauty treatment. Mildred showed me how to do it. And it's awfully easy, you know. All you do is... A... All you do is stick your feet in a bowl of water and then you say wash my feet, soak my toes, soon I'll have a lovely day. Mildred says, I'm going to have my arms pinned back so my ears don't stick out. That should be fun.
0: Gretel never seems to learn her lesson and has naively let herself become the victim of one of Mildred's jokes yet again. Gretel asks Karen if she has any beauty tips of her own, and Karen tells her to wash her hair in lemon juice. So I did look this up, and according to various articles on the internet.
1: You looked this up. You didn't already know, of course. You 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 looked it up, yes, yes. Yes, purely research that led you to know this. Well, washing your hair
0: in lemon juice is uh, quite an old one.
1: It would be if it was being suggested in the 12th century.
0: But I did check it out, and according to various articles on the internet, the citric acid in lemon juice reacts with your hair's colour pigment or melanin and acts as a mild bleach lightening the colour of your hair. It also helps reduce dandruff and make your hair shine yeah. but please don't take this as an endorsement. And if you're going to try it, then for the love of God, please do a patch test a few days before.
1: Yes, I would agree with that, yeah.
0: What we have to remember is lemon juice is acidic and can occasionally cause skin irritation. Basically, what we're saying is if you do try it, we're not going to be held responsible.
1: It really reflects quite sadly on Gretel that this scene actually enhances Mildred as an entertaining character character more than it does Gretel, When Mildred <laughs> never sets foot in the room. Mildred's love of making fun of Gretel's vanity is something I, I rather relish, but what does it say of Gretel that she gets less development from this scene as a character than somebody who doesn't appear in it at all. Gretel asks Karen if she
0: has any more tips for her, and Karen tells her to soak her nails in salt water to help them grow longer. This is somewhat true. Sea salt soaks are still a popular nail treatment to this day. The salt helps to strengthen the nails and remove dead skin. It doesn't actually make them grow
1: longer, but it helps to stop them breaking when they do get long. Or oh, half true. Yeah. One thing which I have to say what, uh, is the way that she says that her nails would be long like Mildred's, and Gretel says sounds really enthusiastic about that. She wants her nails to be like Mildred's. Yeah. Does that include all the muck that gets caught under them with all the fungus growing in it and everything? Gretel is supposed to really value beauty. That's a strange character slip there.
0: Because of Karen's friendly beauty tips, Gretel gives the team a tip of her own. Not a beauty tip, but a dungeon tip.
4: Today is back to front day in the dungeon. Which means... That from the moment you leave the kitchen, until the moment when you discover the nature of your quest, everything is the opposite of what it usually is. That's right, everything! Absolutely awful, isn't it?
0: And with that, Gretel tells Karen to mind how she's not going, and the team lied her out.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm going to unfortunately I'm going to have to say that this is uh, rather superficial. This back to front day thing, this they could have done so much more with this back to the front day notion than they actually deliver. And the real problem is that despite Gretel claiming that absolutely everything is the opposite of what it usually is, in reality, almost nothing. Has changed. All that inverts in practice is the way that characters speak and how Treyguard reacts to anything that Karin encounters. In every other respect, everything is the same as it was before. It does lead to some entertaining descriptions by Traeg though. It's mildly amusing, but not really adding anything to the gameplay, shall we say.
3: Where am I? Right, Carlin, you're on a very narrow path, and if you take any step, no, don't bother don't take any steps but if you do ah
2: how pleasant i
3: should relax
2: here if i were you team there's absolutely no danger and as an added bonus a small friendly furry
1: creature is about Petchu. The spider here just does the same thing it normally does including politely waiting for Karen <laughs> yeah. to get past. So it's only Treyguard's description of it that is back to front here. Nothing else make- nothing else is, is, is any different from what it was before.
0: Although this scene does show us a little bit of a problem that we have with Karen herself in that doesn't seem to be in any
1: kind of hurry. Mm, she's, she's a bit slow walking that's all. I, I've, never, I've never had a great issue with, with karen um as a dungeoneer um i mean it's not terrible but she's very overly cautious yeah i thought i think part of the problem is she actually if you look at her you actually know she has rather short legs or she did back then. I don't know. I don't know about now, but she might. She might sprout then. then But she does have rather short legs, so she can give the impression of dawdling. But I don't think it's. I don't think that's a, a decision on her part. There
0: are scenes later on where it seems that she is very unsure of her footing.
1: I think it's a sudden burst of adrenaline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think. I think. I think that's triggered by genuine fear, though. That those bursts of adrenaline.
3: Where am I? Yeah, in a room. One door is broken down and there's a table in the middle with something on it. Walk forward. There's
2: something of absolutely no interest here, team.
0: I should stay here and ignore it. The dungeon really does seem a little backwards today. And this is clearly the snake room with the crumbling archway, but also appears to be acting as a clue room of sorts, since there's a table here with what appears to be a red herring. But as this is back to front day, will the herring prove useful? The team decide to take it just in case. And when they do, oh how charming. Another little pet. cotton. Why not make friends with it?
1: I really do like Treyguard's descriptions. I think that's just about the only really major thing it adds to it, is there's some, some rather amusing dialogue. So we have absolutely no interest here, team. It does sound so exaggerated to the disinterest. It's kind of a giveaway, anyway. Treyguard's last line is clearly taken from the whale from The yes. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The whale's last thoughts. <laughs> um, I wonder itself. if it will be friends with me. Yeah. <laughs> when it before it crashes into the ground of magrathea um it's clearly copied with a somewhat similar tone into this in, into that sequence I think I think Hugo very very consciously did that do you know
0: what I think the thumbnail for this episode is going to be a picture of the herring with a thought bubble that says oh no not again again yeah, I like that yeah.
1: <laughs> And in fact, also, we can actually title the episode Oh No, Not Again, because once again, the end of season has caused problems the way things finish up. But uh, we'll come to that later again. So the snake materializes very close to Karen. And were it not for the fact that it's clearly a still image, it would almost definitely have got her as it is. team so managed to guide her out without so much as a scratch. But again, this raises the same problem about the back to front day thing. Surely if it's back to front day, the snake would bolster their life force on making contact with them instead of harming them. And that's for the fact that it's, it's a, they use the, um, the relatively still image of the snake coiled up. Why don't they use the other recording of the uncoiled snake as it's coming out from over the debris, but play it in reverse so it starts out stretched out all across the chamber and then reverses backwards over the debris into the ruined nexus and leaves the room? Traegard's already said that it's friendly, so therefore it can't possibly be friendly. Yeah, but why not? It's a, bit why of why a can't... paradox, isn't it? That's again saying that the way that Traegard is talking is actually the only thing that's inverted. Hmm. So, so it's, it, it doesn't really work. A few months later, there was an episode of Red Dwarf called. Backwards, and they did a much much better job of developing backwards logic. Santa Claus is the bastard who goes down chimneys and steals all the kids' favourite toys.
0: <laughs> Francis of Assisi say this and goes <laughs> around maiming uh, small animals. Small animals, <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: That's good backwards logic. That makes yeah. a kind of sense. But um, here, it's extremely superficial, and it really is just the way people are talking. That's the only thing that's changed. <laughs>
3: Where am I, Karen? You're in a room, it's got bare walls, and there's a door on the wall facing you, and there's a table in the corner, the other corner.
2: Ah, here we are. Everything here is free, so I should help yourself, Karen. though I doubt if any of those things will be of much use to you. I should leave the food, though. It's, it's obviously poisoned.
0: Karen is in the real level one clue room now, the one with the checkered floor. On the table today are a ruby, a bar of gold, a bottle of old toenails, and a Nasty. Was the herring used as a food item, then?
1: I think it was. I can't actually remember off the top of my head whether the life force clock reset to green. I don't think we saw it. Nothing actually seems to have come of the red herring, so maybe Traegar was telling the truth when he said that it was something of absolutely no interest. It would have been interesting to see the herring actually be useful There is something. always... We've got to remember, this is the last episode of the season, but there is always the possibility that something's been cut out. Yeah. To reduce time. It could be that the red herring was to be used as a bait... For something or someone that's trying to that, that tries to attack them in a, a chamber that we don't see because of because of editing, maybe. Before the team can do anything else, Granitas manifests for the very last time. Ah! But is it really Granitas? I have to ask you. Might it not be Olgarth? but he introduces himself as Granite Butt because of Back to Front Day. I think you're thinking too much into it. There is the problem that Granite Butt and Olgarf are so completely similar that they might just as well both be the same one anyway. Again, if they're doing the backwards logic correctly, there would be an identity issue with Olgarf and Granite Butt. Anyway, the War Monster, whichever one he may be, begins by telling the team that their quest is to find the chalice. Now that they know what their quest is, the Back to Front Day of Jiggery Pokery comes to an end. Here
0: is my first. Babes are found beneath gooseberry bushes, but which babe was found amongst bulrushes?
1: Very easy. It's one of the Bible's most famous legends. Easily Moses, which they get to their credits. I'm rather impressed with the second one though. Which animal tells you when a ship
0: is sinking, and how does it do so without speaking?
1: Now, this is an example of why I actually think this is a pretty decent team. And although I'm not sure they would have gone on to win if their quest wasn't curtailed by season's end, spoiler alert, I certainly think they were good enough to deserve a chance to try, and they got this riddle right. An awful lot of teams wouldn't even have considered this answer for kids' to show, with actually quite tricky riddle. The answer is rats deserting a sinking ship. I don't think many kids of 14 or younger would have thought of that. No, as an adult, I got it easily, but I don't think I would have as a kid. I agree. I agree. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. And on to the third and final riddle. The songs and legends
0: tell us of
1: a dying
0: king who left his favourite sword in safekeeping. Only his son could draw it forth, but where was it found, this legendary
1: sword? this is actually a rehash of a riddle from the very first episode i think it was the very first riddle actually the dying king is uther and his son is arthur and it was left in a stone three is the score and granitas i've never heard him sound so pleased yeah he seems
0: really impressed doesn't he truth accepted three is the score the
1: bloodstone will only lead to bloodshed I could always picture him growing a pair of hands, mm. and giving him a big round of applause there. Sounds <laughs> so really, really happy. He's finally developed um, a sense of pleasure just in time for us to never hear from him again.
0: Treyguard reminds him that they can now command the monster, but the team tell her not to. See, they're still under the impression that the back-to-front rule still applies until Traegard reminds them that it was only valid until they were told what they were questing for. But they ignore this, and as Karen takes the food, Olgarth disappears, never to return again.
1: Ah, so you're saying it is Olgarth F*** <laughs> <laughs> And as Karen
0: takes the food, Granitas disappears, never to return again.
1: This is the last time we see even the, the, the original War Monsters. It's also, we don't get to hear one last rendition of Guy even going, oh, very well, <laughs> in response to being commanded. I mm. feel slightly deprived there. Let's look back on the uh, the original War Monsters, shall we? Because uh, these two, Olgarf and Grammatos, whichever one it was here, they were the originals. They, they, uh, they were a full year before Igneous made his debut. I thought they were both good enough for establishing the notions of a War Monster and, and establishing the practice of, substituting riddles for combat. But I do sometimes think that Tim Shaw rather hamstrung himself, because I think he made them a bit too dreary. There was little enough you could do with a creature that basically is stuck in a wall its entire time, and sort of turns into a wall and then turns back again. That's about it. By giving them so little personality and even less scope for development, a a lot of their scenes do come across as rather samey. You know, we, we keep getting agitated about them constantly re- re- rehearsing the uh, the rules of the riddle contest. Hmm. But what else can you do with it?
0: Well, that's true. But then again, in a couple of series' time, he really does take the dreariness to the next level with the weeping doors.
1: This is true, yeah. Um, So in many ways, he seems to rather enjoy hamstringing himself. Uh, with technology improving, including the advancement to 3 layer superimposed imagery, the crew, from this point on, don't need to keep using those unconvincing foam puppets or foam masks, whatever they were, approach to portraying the war monsters. So they decided to, to introduce a new style of creating them Mm. They might as well introduce some new war monsters to replace these ones. The two new ones are animated in a completely different way. So they were given a new voice by new cast members. The new guardian in this incarnation of the clue room will be Golgarach. And the new guardian in the alternative clue room would be the first female war monster called Brangwen. Is she the very first female one, though? Because Trangard's not really sure. That's the point. She's the first one we can be sure is female. Female presenting. You listen to Granitas... Olgarth, Igneous, Golgarak. It's very clear their voices are male, and it's very clear that Brangwen's voice is female. So I would say, yeah, the others probably are all male. Karen takes the gold and the toenail clippings, and she leaves the room. I do hope, by the way, those are toenail clippings, because if not, there is only one other explanation for how they were removed from the body, and it's too disgusting to contemplate. <laughs>
3: Where am I? Pardon, you're in a long passage, and there's four doors, and there's a guard at the other end. Um, if you just stay there then now. Well, um, the man's got sort of like a fishing, fishing hood. hood with sort of a hard but- ball in the end.
2: Quick, it's the great corridor of the catacomb. Beware the mindless automatum.
0: It's the corridor of the catacombs, but we're not going to play the jingle today for two reasons. Firstly, it looks quite beautiful today. There's shafts of light emanating from the two windows at the rear, despite the fact that on the other side of the windows is pure darkness. The whole thing lends an eerie, uneasy effect to the corridor
1: it has been missing until now. Yes, fully agreed. Um, and what's more, an enhanced resolution version of this incarnation of the corridor with this particular colour scheme would become the standard appearance for the corridor on level one in the third season. Although there would also be a second great corridor of the Catacombs for most quests that got to level two as well, which made things a bit confusing and inconsistent, uh, and certainly didn't have this colour scheme. That version of this, the corridor of the Catacombs, as we'll see um, in future episodes, stretches infinitely into the distance. There's no visible wall at the far end or anything of that one. That actually is rather disturbing. The second reason is that there is a threat in the corridor today. The team guides Karen to exit through the
0: door on the right. I do like the automaton.
1: Yeah, so do I. He has a relentlessness about him that makes him really quite threatening. And he often Mm. gets very close to the Dungeoneers. And because he doesn't have a mind, he doesn't have any sense of fear. So you can't scare him off or anything. You just, mm. you have to deal with him.
3: Where am I? You're in a uh, dark... Can we... Can we... Can we... Just uh, walk forward, it's a very... Hey!
2: Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear team. This is either an airborne cleaner or Mildred trying out one of her less successful spells.
0: (laughs) Karen has emerged in the cave that is usually occupied by the troll, but it's absent today. Instead, Mildred comes flying in on a broomstick that appears to be making motorbike noises. She
1: has a large learner's symbol around her neck and is clearly struggling to control the broom. This actually sorts of sets a precedent that carries on all the way through Nightmare, right up to the very final season, with the idea that witches' broomsticks have a motorbike engine being maintained even in season six and seven, when Grey Stag and the Grey Sisters are often seen flying on brooms, you still get that weird motorbike noise going on in the background. That's sort of become an established law of physics um, in the Nightmare universe, that broomsticks are actually powered by engines. So it means even the Grey Sisters are using techno-sorcery. Yeah, I don't
0: like it in there either. It's a common joke that's overused and just seems silly and takes away from the gravitas of Mary Miller's performance.
1: I half agree, I half disagree. Um, I agree this is a poor send-off for Mary Miller after she'd been such a strong presence mm. in, in both her roles throughout the first two seasons. I would say, though, this scene in isolation isn't bad. I think the reasons I shall explain shortly, um, if it had happened earlier in the season, it would have been a very handy bit of characterisation for Mildred. We'll get to the points um, in, in the scene where this applies, um, and, and then I'll explain.
0: Mildred finally spies Karen on the ledge and asks for her help. Karen responds in the most obvious way.
4: Well, don't just stand and stare, scallywag! Help me! Would you like some more toenails? <laughs>
0: just...
1: <laughs> the only way that was available, maybe. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't know. It just
0: made me laugh. Would you like smell toenails?
1: Well, naturally.
0: So it turns out that these are exactly what Mildred needs, after all. She instructs Karen to hold the bottle above her head.
4: He who dwells beneath the ground...
3: He who dwells beneath the ground? Yes. Make this broomstick earthward back! Make this broomstick earthward
0: bound. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Mildred thanks Karen and gives her the spell Rust before disappearing.
1: Now, this is the thing I was talking about that I rather like about the scene. It highlights that Mildred is, is a more complex character than most of her contemporaries in the first two seasons.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She's usually crafty and sinister. And even in her lighter moods, as we've seen earlier in the episode, she's very prankster-ish. So there's mm-hmm. always an air of fret about her, which means she's always interesting. Is that it's never dull when she's around. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she also demonstrates here that she does have a proper sense of fairness. And anyone who comes to her, who's done right by her, she will repay them. And that means she isn't this one-dimensional, all-round bad villainess. And but someone who could be either a fret or a help it really underlines that. And I wish this scene had happened around mid-season instead of right at the end of it, because then it would have added an intriguing element of unpredictability about her. Every time she appears, the audience will be watching thinking, now, is she going to help or is she going to cause trouble? She'd be less predictable because you've got this um, you have got this, this precedent established that if you do right by her, she will do right by you. Instead, it happened right at the end of the season in her very last scene. <laughs> uh, so all this added potential that's that's been re-injected into her by the scene just goes to waste. And that's a shame, because not just because it's not good for Mary Miller to go out that way, but also, just with the possible exception of Cedric, Mildred was probably my favourite dungeon character in the first few years. I think you'd probably agree with that, I'm not, I'm not completely sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But also, after doing such a fine job as both Mildred and Lilith, Mary Miller deserved a better send-off than that, a much better send-off.
0: Trey Glad tells the team to hurry away now, but Karen's in no rush. She takes a stroll towards the exit. Where am I? Karin. You're in
3: the well room. You're in the well room. Some food
2: here, team, and you need it. Life force condition red.
1: She arrives to the wellway to level two. Karen slowly edges her way towards the food that's on the floor, then seems to have a sudden burst of adrenaline when she practically leaps upon the food and knapsacks it, which is just before her life force runs out. But as she does so, the automaton makes an appearance.
3: Karen, go forward. Go forward.
1: forward. For some reason, Karen comes from being a bit slow to being the only one with any sense of urgency, and enough to actually realise that she's in danger.
3: Help, there's a guardie. Quick, stop! Karen, walk to the... Walk to the what's what's your right. Five
0: paces to your right. So as it, she says here, is it help, there's a guardie, or help, there's a baddie?
1: I think what she said is help. There's a guard here. This is actually quite an exciting scene, um, and partly because of the the way Karen is reacting. But it's impressive how she actually takes charge here. And she says, for once, we've actually got the advisors getting instructions from a dungeon she gives the orders
3: cast a spell or something! Cast a spell or something? (laughs) Right. Spell casting. R U S T.
0: The spell has an instant effect the ultimatum's joint seize up and he falls awkwardly to the floor Edmund Dane sells this pratfall really
1: well yeah it's, it's a very convincing fall but let's face it from all the times Edmund has had to play gumball getting legless or getting beaten up he's had a lot of practice with doing performing pratfalls <laughs> by now hasn't that's he that's true he's done two seasons of this now it's it's you know if even the itch spell he ends up having to crash to the floor on his knees it's become a, the defining characteristic of gumboil being on the floor all the time so this is the last will ever encounter the
0: automaton, and unlike Mildred in the previous scene I think that this is a
1: proper good send-off. Yeah, fans seem to conclude that this spell effectively destroys the automaton, and that's why it never appears in subsequent seasons which is a good enough in-story explanation for me but I think the real reason is that Tim Charles decided he wanted to replace Gumboil, who really had become just a complete joke of a figure by this point and that meant Edmund Dane probably had to move on. It is fitting in the sense of Gumboil's history but perhaps a little undignified for Edmund as an actor that he bows out from the series in a a slightly slapstick fashion. But yeah, it is a terminal ending for him, so it does work a bit better as an ending than uh, Mary Miller's, I would agree.
0: With the automaton out for the Count, the team guide Karen around him and into the well. Whee!
3: He's actually lying on the ground. Can you see him? I see a bit of fruit... Right, right, go forward now, and do not go to your right. So you'll kick him. Right, can you see the, the well? Yes. Now get in it.
4: Oh, bunches! oh bunches! Are you dead? Oh. Have you been exploded to bits, have you? Oh, you poor, poor de wolf. Hey! This is all your fault, Colin. Just look what you've done to Bunches. You've exploded
1: him! This scene starts at 14 minutes 33. I've done a bit of extra analysis on this one, and um, you, you might agree with it, you might disagree with it, but I, I'm, I'm going to compare it with a certain scene in season one.
0: Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so it starts off with an explosion immediately, so that,
0: kind of, that kind of grabs you, doesn't it?
1: And I think, <laughs> but then it goes downhill from there, because, yeah. Gretel, because Gretel appears again. You just have this really panicked fight scene between Karen and the automator in the previous chamber, and then you start this scene with a huge (laughs) nuclear moment. And then Gretel walks on and just spoils everything.
0: There is a lot going on in this scene from the get-go, so I will do my best to explain what's happening here. Karen goes down the railway and lands directly on a detonator, setting off an explosion. Bumptious is blown clean off his feet by the explosion, despite the fact that Karen, who was between him and the blast, is completely unharmed. Mm. Gretel then comes running in to check on Bumptious and starts screeching at Karen that it's all her fault, despite the fact Karen was not the one who placed the detonator underneath a bloody wellway.
1: Well, you know, you've got to be able to control your fall when you're when you're tumbling out of a wellway. Apparently, it's also interesting to remember um, earlier in the season when Neil had to press the plunger; he was right in front of the explosion and he was totally unaffected by it as well it's kind of a very very curious law of physics that this mind seems to um submit to and uh i I don't think being part of the dungeon is enough of an explanation for that really
4: oh that's not nice Karin. that's not nice at all (gasps) what's worse you've been playing with his plunger Matron,
0: take them away! Gretel runs off to get a damp cloth and Treyguard says that he thinks the team might be in hot water this time.
1: You've been playing with his plunger. Got into my top 20 list of the most suggestive things they ever said in Nightmare. In this next clip, listen out for the
0: audible thud as Gretel slams Bumptious' head into the floor.
4: I'm coming, Bumptious! I'm coming! There we are! Oh, there we are! (laughs) Poor Bumptious! Nurse, make you better. Uh, Come on, uh, Bunches, pull yourself together. Uh, there we are.
2: Oh, bangs and crashings,
0: crashings and bangs. If that black leg's damaged, me beard. Gretel helps Bunches to his feet and he checks himself over. Everything seems okay, but then look what he's
4: done to me, rule Book. <gasps> oh. Right, do it from memory. I will. Right, you stand up. Right.
3: Can't Um, stand
4: up. Under
2: Rule 43C, uh, on-site first aid successfully administered. Thank you
0: very much indeed, Gretel. Um, Funptious opens an official inquiry as to the cause of the accident, once again playing the majority of the legal roles himself. However, he appoints Gretel as minute-taker.
1: Probably a mistake. The uh, pound-notes joke is officially the absolute worst attempt at being funny in all of season two. And I thought, rather than minute-taker, wouldn't she be called the clerk of the court? Yeah. That sounds like an even bigger mistake, actually. Forget I said it.
0: Bumptious tells Karen that she has no right going around exploding people and that he intends to prove that she's completely unqualified. Qualified for exploding people? I don't really remember seeing any MVQs in exploding people when I was uh, looking at college prospectuses. For me,
1: this is season two's sort of nearest equivalent to the duel by insults in season one. Yeah. A rather overlong set piece with more than one dungeon character on screen. Thankfully, at least the team have a proactive role this time around and they have to answer some riddles, but they're not terribly taxing riddles.
0: They're not really level two riddles, are they?
1: They are not. Give me three letters that cause explosion. Well, actually, it's two. You get the same one twice.
0: Stick a bunny in
1: me pocket. I'll fetch the suitcase. Yes, by the way, when Bob says the same letter twice, he pulls an expression that, thanks to the beard, makes him look an absolute dead ringer for Uncle Albert from and Horses. So the team get this one right. <laughs> Which they bloody well should do. And they got even less excuse if they got the second one wrong. A little mite is a baby, but what's the mite that's a great big banger? And that's obviously diner right? mites. And then the third riddle is... Lady's powder is pink, baby's powder is white, but what colour is gunpowder? Gun-coloured. This is probably the hardest of the three riddles, but that only serves to emphasise how easy the other two were. And for some reason, Karen and her friends decide the answer is. Was- Ink. pink pink gunpowder well i think they just genuinely don't know all they have to do is think of a snooker table and just pick a color at random from there they know to exclude pink because it's already been mentioned in the riddle exactly yes so just just choose one of the other colors and the most obvious one most people go to is black mm. because the black ball is the one that's worth the most points just i know, just think of it that way choosing pink of all colors for gunpowder no. They choose pig. it obviously isn't the correct answer. But Bumptious, very wrongly in my opinion, phones Karen innocent anyway. So Gretel has a panicked advisor's moment here when she talks over Bumptious as he's trying to sum up. Yeah. uh, I get the feeling that Audrey was being a bit end of the pier in this scene as she realised this was probably her last chance to shine on a series that gave her absolutely no opportunity to. Because Karen has done so well, Bumptures gives her a flight spell and instructs her to go through the big hole she's made. Why he tells her to do that, I don't know, because it's a brand new hole. He obviously has no idea where it's going to lead, but he sends her through it anyway. On
2: your way, go through that girdle you've made. Through that wall there, right? While me and Gretel are going for a cup of tea and mind how you go and and be careful where you fall next time.
1: What does it say in his rule book about unauthorised tea breaks, by the way? I'm more concerned with what the rule book says about a minor caught in the middle of a violent explosion who just wanders off for a cup of tea and not just, for instance, going for medical attention and making sure he doesn't have second-degree burns or severe concussion aggravated by Gretel slamming his head repeatedly into the floor. But I guess I'm just funny that way. But they leave the scene on 18 minutes 32. So it's actually only a four-minute sequence. It's more concise than the duel by insults. I think they've learnt... Um, from the downside of the duel by insults from season one, I think Tom Carroll deserves credit for maintaining his Arthur Scargill person it throughout the scene so adroitly, because it actually must have been quite awkward for him to perform it, because he's got to do, he's, he's actually got to do a, a several physical stunts in there throughout. I think it's better than the duel by insults, but it still feels a bit forced. I don't know if you remember we were discussing the duel by insults and we were saying that it was it there was something very experimental about it as i say they, they've they've ironed it out they sped it up a bit but it still feels a bit forced and also gretel isn't really adding very much to the scene that it couldn't do without i mean i, I suppose it did need somebody to talk to Karen whilst bumptious was unconscious but i could have got anybody to do that really couldn't they yeah
3: where am I? a um, sort of and
0: the ends have gone round. A haunting is present among the mills of doom today, but it appears to get ignored at first. The team carefully guide Karen onto the central cog, where Traegard deems it necessary to remind them of the apparition's presence. Beware the ghost, it's not harming you yet. Karen moves onto the third cog and very nearly stumbles off the edge, but she
1: regains her balance and the team walk her out. Why is the haunting here? I don't know. It's actually just remains rooted in a part of the chamber that Karen can't step on anyway, as there's no flaw there. I think it was to give the illusion of more than one fret, but the effect, such as it is, is not what was hoped for. I think we'll have to put that down to a brave failed try or something. One thing this scene does highlight is that Karen isn't great at manoeuvring. She massively overcompensates with the first step from one cog to the other. She's always three quarters of the way across the second cog, when she. <laughs> lands and as you say she then really comes very very close to going over the edge of the third cog so she's she seems to be trying to overcompensate for me
3: where am i can't you run a broken down like truck going across this um gap oh, it's Cervasque. Cervasque. and it's broken
1: the bridge across the veil has been severely damaged so with no other option available the team decide to use magic to get across Because they've got a spell that just happens to be an ideal solution to the situation. We always like spells because it feels really powerful when they're being cast. But really, spells are just a third clue object. And just like the clue objects, they are always given out with a view to what happens later. And in this quest, it's never more obvious. Of all the times for the bridge to have fallen in, it just happens to be when the team happens to have a spell that allows their Dungeoneer to fly over the gap. And of all the times for the automaton to get between the Dungeoneer and the Wellway, it just happens to be when the team have a spell that can turn an automaton into rusty scrap. So it's really signposted quite clearly in this quest, probably more than any other in series history. It's not actually a problem, I should stress, but it doesn't help you suspend disbelief.
3: Spellcasting. F. L. I-G-H-T
0: as the magical chime plays, Karen floats gracefully across the gap. I say gracefully, what I mean is the mouse pointer picks up her image and
1: moves. <laughs> yeah, it. And that lost. is it. That is it. And it's, sort of, it, <laughs> it's going too far at one point, so it then sort of goes this, this yeah. rub, lov, lovely, lovely loop. but It's, it's clearly going to take her right into the exit and bang her head. And so suddenly towards the end, it sort of becomes a vertical drop. So it worked fine for 1988. I, w- I was suitably impressed back in 1988 when I saw it. But... Uh, yeah, they they do it. They'd find better ways of doing it <laughs> today.
3: When am I? Karen, you're in a sort of right. a big room
1: and um, there's stairs right in front of you.
0: The team have arrived at last in the level 2 clue room.
1: It's the last time we're ever going to see what was one of the greatest hand-drawn chambers ever.
0: Karen almost falls head over heels down the middle of the stairs, and then again when she reaches the bottom. But she does make it to the altar in one piece. It is a horrible feeling. Do you ever do that when you're yeah,
1: going yeah. down the stairs in the dark? It really hurts your knees. Yeah. You're slamming your knees into the floor rather than dropping them onto the floor below. And that really, really puts all the weight of your body straight into your knees. And it's oh, especially bad for me because I'm not all that slim, shall we say. We're at that age now where everything hurts our knees. Nowadays, certainly. Just getting out of bed in the morning hurts our knees these days.
0: There's a string of sausages on the table that go into the knapsack. The other items are a torch, some pearls and a key.
1: Don't you think a full string of sausages is being a little bit excessive? I do, but I think it's more to make it obvious that they're sausages. Uh, I think it could be. Uh, I think we know what the key is, don't we? Yeah. Hey,
2: get off!
0: So we've said an awful lot of bad things about Casper in the past but I want to make it clear like we did with Audrey Jenkinson it's obvious to me that the character is intentionally written to be annoying which results in a type of comedy which works for a lot of people we sometimes exaggerate our annoyance with the character for comic effect I don't I goblin horning hate the little Newark but even with that in mind we never really lose sight of the fact that Lawrence Werber plays the character to perfection he is an outstanding actor and I'm sure he's an even better dentist and we will Miss him terribly as we go into series three.
1: I do wholeheartedly agree that Lawrence was a major loss to the series when he was written out. But I mean that exclusively for Cedric performances. <laughs> I'm not. I will be perfectly fair to Lawrence. He could only do the best he could with what he was given. But it's Cedric that I miss in the in later seasons. It's definitely not Casper.
0: Oh yeah, definitely don't miss Casper. I just think that Lawrence
1: Weber was given a briefing for the character and he carried it out. He was being professional. But for all that, I'm not sorry that Casper never appears again after this that's not Lawrence's fault. It's just the reality that he was clearly instructed to give him a really irritating high-pitched voice.
0: Casper introduces himself and tells Karen that he can unlock any door, but she mustn't take him into level three.
1: In their position, I would not only be very quick to make that promise, I would also be very quick to offer not to take him any further into level two either. But unfortunately, the team decide to take casper well let's be honest
0: spoilers here it's not going to make much difference is no, it, it, it
1: it's, it's the happy news is that we won't hear any more of casper anyway so
0: they take casper and the light and they guide Karen out hello listeners of illusion Before we go into the next chamber, we'd like to do this little announcement thingy. We know some of you like to watch along with the podcast. We know you listen to some of the podcast and then watch a little bit of the programme and then pause it and listen to a bit more of the podcast and so on and so forth. With that in mind, we feel it's important to give you a warning about this next chamber because there is a severe epilepsy warning for flashing colours and flashing lights and it goes on almost till the end of the programme, so we just wanted to make you aware. Thank you very much.
3: Where am I? You're in front of a wall, Karen, and it's got... Jericho. Jericho 6 written
1: on it. We arrive, and of all places, the Jericho 6 room in the middle of Level 2. I think the point here is that it's a part where they can actually go no further. Yeah. Um, I recall a feeling of terrible deflation when, when the wall appeared, um, when I saw this back in 1988. Yeah, was, I was thinking... How did that get there? It's supposed to be level three. And, and then I was having, even Casper won't be able to help with that. Karen won't be able to bring the wall down. Well, did you pick a wrong object in the previous clue room?
3: We can just see a doorway kind of in front of you, and there's four windows. You can't pa- get past the wall. So. <laughs> <laughs> Cease
2: all adventuring, team. The time. The very fabric of the dungeon is under threat and Karen must be rescued at
1: once get the sort of the weird synth noise and uh, this uh, really psychedelic flashing lights effect there used to be a caption company david forrester's interactive nightmare website you can still find it had a caption competition and one of the pictures i think it was in 2004 was a freeze frame of trey frantic expression as he casts the return spell while you've got all these colored lights flashing all around them and almost all of the caption writers suggested lines to do with trey being addicted to lsd and it does feel very trippy watching it, doesn't it? It does,
0: yeah. I find it actually quite difficult to watch because of the flashing
1: images and lights. I don't think I ever had that problem, but um, it is weird. It's trying to give the impression of something disintegrating. And I don't think it really manages to do it. It doesn't work today at all. It doesn't quite convey what it's trying to convey. But it does suggest something dangerous. It, it suggests that um, almost as though all the solid objects are turning into pure energy and that they can vaporise anybody who touches it. It does definitely convey a, a remarkable sense of danger.
0: guard steps in to rescue Karen, with the use of magic.
2: Spellcasting! R-E-T-U-R-N! Girls, I'm sorry to say that your bold quest cannot be completed. Watch now, for time has deserted us. And this phase of the dungeon is over. The very magic that sustains it is fading.
0: Treyguard removes Karen's helmet and we're treated to the sight of the dungeon fading away. Like we said, this effect might not look impressive now, but back in 1988, when we watched this for the first time, this was a pivotal moment. There was a gravitas to the ending that was absent from the first series. In comparison, it felt like an ending. It felt like something was changing. And whatever came after this, it would be different, unfamiliar. And exciting.
1: I didn't feel this was an ending. I felt this was just a halt. It was just a stop. It was somebody putting up the red lights and just saying, we're stopping here. It I'm, trying to, feels... I'm trying
0: to end <laughs> this on some kind of yeah, right I... feeling of... Yeah, no. I did, cr- did
1: criticise <laughs> <laughs> I do critical analysis, all right? <laughs> you just you just have to live with it. I know what you're saying, and there is a certain element of something very, very powerful happening, mean, way more powerful than we can influence. There's still something not quite right here. I think this is definitely something which they started doing a lot better in later years. They couldn't really come up with a way of making the season end at this point that really felt right. And I say, this is an interruption rather than an ending. In some ways, you could argue that it's better than the first season ending, because what they did there, they very clearly cheated by cutting out substantial amounts of of questing time uh, just left on the editor's floor to get the episode down to 20 minutes. Here, they couldn't do that, so they just basically said, right, it all stops here. Maybe I'd feel better about it um, if they'd invited Karen and her team back to be season three's opening quest, because I do think that interruption deprived them of a chance they deserved to complete the quest.
0: Just a quick thing here, if Karen, Pamela, Angela or Nicola are actually listening to this. Get in touch, because we would love to hear from you. You'll find our email address at the end of the podcast. Watchers,
2: you too must wait now until the dungeon reforms itself and prepares for the next age of adventure. Just remember,
0: when fortune's wheel spins, the nightmare returns. And we're left with the image of the wheel of fate grinding
1: to a halt. So the Wheel of Fate grinding to a halt like that actually kind of uh, echoes the fate of the automaton when the Rust spell works mm. on it, doesn't it? But it is kind of a nice metaphor, because like we said before, the Wheel of Fate seems to represent the dungeon as a whole. So when it grinds to a halt, the dungeon grinds to a halt. Season 3, to sum up, we have to look ahead to Season 3 in part, and Season 3, mm. when it arrives, is considered by many to be the best season, and certainly the strongest of the hand-drawn seasons. Many of the more ragged um, sort of rooms for the first two, seasons, um, get binned and some of the retained rooms are modified and enhanced. Yes. It does pick up a bit of an Egyptian feel. It does, yes. But you know for all its faults, I still tend to prefer season two. Um, and one of the reasons is because several of the best characters of the early years are in season two, mm. several of the worst characters are also in <laughs> season two. Yes. I said. <coughs> <coughs> um, but uh, <coughs> but, but um, you know, uh, we uh, Mildred and Cedric have uh, are offloaded by the start of season three and they're not they're never really properly replaced. And I do think you do miss them very, very much a lot of the time. Mrs. Grimwald is a sort of direct replacement for Mildred. I prefer. Uh, Mildreds, but you can get some fun from Mrs. Grimwald. I
0: think Mildred is the better character, but the comedy with Mrs Grimwald is better, in my opinion.
1: Probably. It does get a bit one-note. So often, the comedy comes from her making blood-curdling remarks about Festus.
0: So looking back at series two as a whole, it's been an interesting one. We've had not only our first winning quest, but also our second winning quest.
1: Yep. It's definitely better than season one by a very long way. It's taken all of the basics from season one, and it's complemented them. And I think the fact that it's uh, it's fleshed out to 60 episodes is hugely important as well they're still experimenting all the time but it feels less experimental than season one did there's definitely a lot more variety of architecture and what have you and as we now have some dungeon, and teams who are who, who've experienced watching nightmare there are times when season two is much faster paced than season one which i think is a massive help there's a good spell um in the early middle phase of the season where definitely this this the pace has really picked up. Remember Team 3, as me and uh, Amy discussed a few months ago now. Yeah, it's uh, been a while uh, now. This is over <laughs> six months ago. Team Free really shot through uh, their quest. I- incredible speed at times. So it's becoming, at, at times, it's a lot more of an entertainment rather than just um, a, a curiosity as it was in mm. Season 1. At the same time, there's limits on the technology that... Uh, don't help matters uh it's still struggling with. Some of the teams in season two are just rubbish. Apologies to Anthony Haig. I know I know that he's aware of what we said about him. Unfortunately, I do have to stand by it. I don't doubt you've developed as a character yourself over the last 83 years.
0: I would actually just like to say thank you to Anthony Hague. actually. For... We did rip into him a bit, but he's taken it in good humour and he's I, been I'm a glad. really good sport. I am about glad it.
1: about that. Akash's team. What can we say about Akash's team that hasn't already been said about about them about a thousand times and those ones don't help sometimes the city mistakes can be entertaining but it doesn't make uh for particularly prolonged quests but overall it's a massive step up from season one
0: so who was your favorite team of
1: season two then i think my favorite is actually team three uh well I'm, I'm fond of team seven even though they were <laughs> famously <laughs> Made an awful lot of blunders, and some, but somehow still got to the end of level two. Mm. I do still find them very entertaining to watch, and, and they, they do sparkle off each other quite a bit. I don't actually dislike Akash's team. I should mention, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, I despise them, but I don't actually dislike them. I, I'm, I'm contemptuous of, the, of yes. the, their, their inability, but <laughs> I, I, did, I did find Akash himself to be quite quite a smart mouth at mm. time. Julian's team, they were a bit up and down, but uh, there was they, they did have a certain something about them that you, you couldn't deny. The original champions, of course, are in there in Team 4. Fairly entertaining team. Um, I do still uh, sort of have to sort of doff my uh, cap in admiration for the way Mark repeatedly found himself having to chat up other species occasionally um, <laughs> and, he, and, and he was able to do it without ever uh, sounding particularly embarrassed or anything I think you've got to give a massive thumbs up for that there's some good teams in there there's some good yeah. teams in there Mark's team is
0: definitely up there among my favorites team four partly because it's the first time we've actually seen what a completed quest actually looks like and it has that sequence with the dragon, which I absolutely love, despite it being kind of negated slightly <laughs> by the crocodile
1: remark. Again, I find that rather amusing. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, actually, if you stop and think about it, it's a bloody terrifying moment because you've just insulted a dragon by calling it a crocodile.
0: I would say probably my favourite team is team seven from a pure entertainment standpoint speaking of team seven i'm just on nightmare.com at the moment and it's in february 2004 advisor jason bond signed the guest book and said i was once on the show in 1988 this site has brought back so many good memories to this day when i was only 14 i'm 29 now good site and this was in 2004. It'll be a bit older now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we all? Yeah, um, I was 29 in 2004, so he's, he's obviously yeah. the same age as me. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a few people who have signed the guest book down the years claiming to have been Dungeoneers or team members. Um, mm. Some of them have been corroborated, some haven't.
0: Especially back then, there wasn't really any way.
1: There's no vetting process, no, yeah. no none at all. The,
0: not that anything was possible, I don't think.
1: I dare say it might very well have been him. I'm not trying to imply that it definitely wasn't.
0: There is a nice photo of Jason and Craig with their certificates on the site, sent in by the sister of one of the advisors.
1: I'm just lo- looking through here, t- trying to figure out who disappears after this episode. Audrey Jenkinson, she's out. Alec Westwood, he's out. Lawrence Werber, as we've established, he's out. Guy is, is, is he's gone. He, he went before beginning one month as Edmund Dane. We're saying goodbye to
0: a lot of people. Uh, it's,
1: it's its quite a call, isn't it? It's it's, yeah. a, its a massive turnover between seasons two and three for the cast. What other character, actually, who goes here is Trayguard because when he returns in season three, he ain't really got the same personality anymore. It's still Hugo playing him, very definitely still Hugo. He's still weird but um, to an extent he stops being a sinister character in season three.
0: Yeah, he's definitely edging a lot more to the side of good guy.
1: Yeah, he's becoming Obi-Wan Kenobi. I do think that d- it detracts from him. There are occasions where he still does delight in the uh, misfortune of some Dungeoneers. He still remains neutral in season three and, and to an extent in season four, but he's very definitely become the leader of the good guys by season five. And they've taken all his balls away, if, if you ask me by then.
0: But well, we will talk about all the different changes between season two and three at a later date. Uh, that's all for this episode and as a result that's all for this series of temporal discussion don't worry though, we've got a few surprises lined up for you during the interseason, after which we'll be back with series three, episode zero, where we'll be talking about the songs, movies, and other events that occurred during the off-season. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at Nightmare Pod. And if you want to support the podcast, we're also Nightmare Pod on Patreon and Kofi. Speaking of Patreon, here to shout out to keeper of the book of quests, David N. Rabbit, advisors Peter Pulsford, Peter Sidon and Stuart Leatherland, Dungeoneer David Thomas. You can support us on Patreon at Dungeoneer level or above to get your name mentioned in the podcast. Our website is nightmarepod.co.uk and if you're looking for Temporal Discussion merchandise including t-shirt stickers and other products, it's at nightmarepod.redbubble.com
1: And I just say, before you continue, that uh, Mr H is wearing a rather fetching Temporal Discussion shirt. Yes, I know the um, the metal bit around uh, around the mouth level does make him look a little bit like Soundwave on Trans <laughs> <laughs> Transformers. But I still think that looks rather grand, and yes. I, th- I think, uh, and I think that a lot of you would look rather good with a, a T-shirt like that on.
0: The T-shirt was actually designed by Fiverr user that underscore sahib bali
1: you can also email us at podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk
0: and before we go i'd like to give an extra special thanks to alan boyd david forrester keith mcdonald david goldstein chris ballard robin barlow nicholas lamb and everybody else who's ever had a hand in making nightmare.com and its related sites the font of information they are and remember don't have nightmares
1: for the last time this season just watch them instead
0: So before we do the discussion, I have to nip to the loo real
1: quick. Okay. okay. But I'll be right back. Okay. I'm gonna leave re- the recording going. Yeah, you might as well. You might as well. I'll do all sorts of embarrassing things that get caught onto the recording. Whilst uh, whilst you're away, I'm the star. Oh my god, I think I can actually hear the. Oh god, how embarrassing. I can I can actually hear the, the the stuff going into the toilet there that is uh how gross Oh god I can hear it flushing now as well oh god how horrible oh uh uh yuck